This is Jan Cox, talk number 2516, recorded April 24th, 2000. Okay, I'm going to read the rest of this batch that I wrote and started a week ago, see if I can finish it before I say anything. The third half of set 2031 of that exceptionally fine year, 2000. Isn't it a great year? This is where I left off in the middle of this page last time. Those who cannot distinguish between the worlds of words and movement are in for a lifetime of normal frustration, uncertainty, and ignorance. Note, this is no exaggeration. Alone atop a mountain as he struggled for the goal, a man looked down toward the cities and note and mused. The difference between me and everyone else is that they don't know what to suffer over and must be told. <laughs> well, that's what I was going to talk about. Let me go ahead and finish. Until a man discovers for himself the distinction between the world of movement and the world of words, he will never untangle the puzzles and criticisms that life that lie just behind his eyes and see directly into what is going on. I repeat, no hyperbole is involved, but remember this. The way to keep from being bothered about your less than maximally alert condition is to be in that condition. <laughs> While asleep, a man has no complaint with being narcoleptic. A man depending on words for enlightenment is too clever by half for his own good. A man's understanding of life is revealed when he speaks, as to seen sentence by sentence to what other words his words lead him. I may not ever get around to speaking of that, but does anybody... No one ever seems to notice that. And it came to me just in one big swoop one time that you can tell what's in a man. You can tell his level of understanding or his level of enlightenment. But I can tell even more just with ordinary people who are neither enlightened or unenlightened. But I might say their degree of any comprehension of what life is about by just listening to them talk about anything, let them wander on, whether it be talking about politics, religion, uh, just gossip, and just come in the middle of a conversation, just listen to them, and then there'll be some little theme, you know, we all talk, they're talking about somebody, some event, and they'll pause, and then see where they go from whatever they were saying, it doesn't matter what, once you can catch on to what I'm saying, whatever they were talking about, just, just listen, and see where their words that they were just speaking, where their words, what new words, their present words lead them. And if you ever see that, if you can ever hear what I'm talking about, just within seconds, just very few seconds, you will have a firm grasp of what sort of understanding, if any, the person has, or whether they're talking completely, totally, from at a mechanical level. At any rate, it's subtle, but it's very telling, if you can never hear it yourself. Back to the reading. One man says, it became obvious to me that I was far too entangled with words when I realized that I was talking to vermin in my house. <laughs> telling flies to stay outside so I wouldn't have to swat them. Telling roaches to go away so I wouldn't have to poison them, and so on. Then an even more significant aspect of this hit me as regards the talking I direct at my apparent internal vermin. It is beyond my comprehension how any sincere investigator could fail to look into this overlooked matter of people like us engaging in an attempted extermination of unwanted pests using words as the pesticide when words are the past. It is indeed clear and obvious to me now how easy it is to become far too entangled in words. End of his quote.
He who wrestles seriously with words is seriously misadvised. You do not struggle with a phantom army. You struggle to see it for what it is. A father said to a son, from one view of that certain model, words put us to sleep. So you would be inclined to think that words can wake us up. But it is not so simple as that. Well, it actually is, but you can't see it so simply in the beginning. Even if it be valid to say that words put us to sleep, it is not ultimately words which can awaken us from this state, but rather the personal realization of the normally ignored role that words play in man's life. This matter is subtle indeed. Those who proclaim the importance of words in man's life don't get it. And those who insist that words have no importance don't get it. Do you, my boy? Do you begin to get it? Waking up to the reality of the world of words is a most crafty affair, not unlike an echo attempting to catch itself in midair so as to trace its point of origin. My boy, do not ask words to explain themselves, and do not expect thoughts about awakening to bring you to awakening. It's all sad but true. It's all hilarious but true. End of the Father's quote. Rather than being a cause of irritation, as is so common, when seen for what it truly is, the world of words can be a source of harmless fun. Words damage only those who are heedless to their distinction from movement. While words are a phantom army, they can still overrun the unwary. One guy's motto, quote, if it moves, keep an eye on it. If it talks, laugh at it. And finally, a boy, a son, well into his middle years, one day said to his father, although I've tried to deny it, and even struggled with it. I've had to face the glaring fact that I hate anything new coming into my life. And his old man gave a half-hearted smile and nodded his understanding while thinking to himself, huh, just the way you fully wake up to what's going on. <laughs> Understand? If you hate new stuff coming into your life, will you, will you see what happens when you fully wake up? Hmm. Driving over here, I was already giving some thought. I remembered where I left off last Friday, and I was going to pick up on this first page I read about a man who was sitting up on the mountaintop, looking down at a city, a man who'd been up there struggling alone. All that, of course, is bullshit. Well, maybe there is such a man. Anyway, he looked down at the city, which is to say that he looked down from a position internally, uh, struggling to achieve this, the goal of all of this, and look down upon, you could say, his lower self, look down his ordinary self, and he looked down life. But it started off, the basis of it was, as I put it to you, that he looked out at life, at everyone else, and he says, there is a glaring distinction between me and everyone else, one in particular, and that is, they don't seem to know what to suffer over. They have to be told. And I said a little bit about this, and speaking about religion, for instance, and people always seeking and turning to words outside of themselves to help guide the way they live, to help direct their life. I realized when I was thinking about that coming over here that there was something I have never pointed out, that I have never brought up. Uh, as I continue commonly now to point out to you certain things that came to my head 
that proved to be of great value. One of them that I never pointed out is this example when I said the man said, because I could go ahead and say me. Always reminding if there are any new people out there, fairly new listeners on tape, this has nothing to do with me. Other than the fact that I am all I have to go by. Since I don't have a system, since I didn't learn a system, since I didn't study a system, since I now think screw a system, <laughs> the only thing I have to go by is my experience and what I understand. And the thing that I've never pointed out is when I bring up periodically, which I have done more often of late, when I'll bring up something that I present in the first person, such as this, let me go ahead and say this, that I looked out finally at life and realized that there was a great distinction between me and not only everybody else, but me and all would-be mystics, the kind of people that one time I thought maybe I would study with. If they were alive, I would be studying with them. Or the people kinds of groups that I would consider going to study with. One day it hit me that all of them have to be told what to suffer over. And as I was saying Friday, I use the word suffer advisedly. I just don't really know what else. Disturbed, bothered, and by that I mean the state that everyone else calls being asleep, in which I normally go ahead and use the term that I have, as I pointed out to you, I've been bothered as long as I can remember being conscious. And when I say bothered, not enough that I didn't become a drug addict, I'm not a drunk, I've never con contemplated suicide, I've never been in analysis, I am not special, I am run of the mill, but I am extremely bothered by the condition in my head, and always have been. And one more time, when I say bothered, you know, I don't mean that I felt like I was going crazy. It was like I knew that there was an inchoate hobby, that there was a basis of some great hobby or some great adventure, and I never could find how to get started. I couldn't find a satisfactory conversationalist. I've told you all this, and it's not a that I started trying to talk to you know, priests and rabbis and teachers and psychologists you know, when I was just barely in my teens and couldn't find anyone interested in it. So, I repeat, I am not special. Uh, besides knowing the secret of all this, there are a few things in ordinary life that I know for sure that I don't mind telling you. And one of them is, is I am not special. I know that. I am different but I don't consider it to be whatsoever superior, because it's not. I can see what life is, I see what other people are, I see where people stand in relationship to each other, which is everybody's just in the same place. We're here on this planet. But, what I'm getting at, that I said I've never told you, that I've never pointed out, is when I bring up such as this, well, no one I bring up periodically, the point that I said I have considered in the past, whereas I originally started out, as soon as I heard the notion about man is asleep and could awaken through certain efforts, and I decided that's it. We are asleep and I want to awaken, and I'm a part of that small band that wants to awaken. Then after some several decades, one day it hit me of how different it's I seen from even those who claim they wanted to awaken every time I would get exposed to them is then I thought, wait a minute, maybe the reason I'm different, I may be the only person in the world that's asleep and everybody else is awake. And every time I bring that up, uh, one or two people here in the room will grin, some of you grimace, most people just look at me nonplussed. I don't really bring it up to be sarcastic, I don't bring it up to be humorous. Now here's what I've said that I've never pointed out. Those sorts of things that come to my mind, come to my head, that may sound to be more of a philosophical musing regarding the nature of what the great secret work, the struggle to achieve enlightenment might be, but it's not that. I have found that to be of extremely personal profit to pursue that. 
And every time I bring it up, I normally kind of brush it off to you people and just make a joke and say, isn't that weird, or what if it's true? And I feel as though, if any of you pay any attention to such as that, or me saying that I finally realized the great difference between me and not everyone else even, but me and everyone that I've ever been exposed to, that claim that they wanted to awaken. That there is a distinct difference, and as far as I find any record, I'm not saying that I am unique, but there is no record of anyone ever pointing this out. That is, I don't see anyone in the world that knows how to suffer over being asleep without being told about it. And I don't mean just being told the first time that man's asleep and with certain efforts he can awaken. Because I was already suffering over it. As I said, curious, troubled, bothered in a pleasant way, bothered in an, in an anticipatory way. I don't have to talk this to death forever, do I? I was not satisfied. Maybe that's what I should have said. Damn. So much of my superior intelligence. I knew I didn't like bothered and troubled and annoyed. I wasn't satisfied. Jesus, why didn't somebody help me? I've never been satisfied and couldn't find anything to satisfy me. Closest thing that satisfied me when I read, man is dissatisfied. He's asleep with certain efforts he can be satisfied. And I thought, well, wow, now I'm getting somewhere. And of course, then I was extremely dissatisfied because, well, now I know why I'm dissatisfied. I'm asleep. Of course, somebody awake so I can find out what to do and I couldn't find anybody. And of course, then I got, you might say, even more dissatisfied. But at any rate, I have found this to be of great personal use. Now, remember, we are not talking about me. I am not the point, except as far as I know. You know I've never found a peer. I hadn't found a peer in history. No one's ever bothered to say this. I can't believe I'm the only one to see it this way. But everyone else, including the weekend mystics, the dilettante mystics, the people who consider themselves serious, they all rely the same as everyone else in the world. They rely on some extrinsic source to tell them what's bothering them, to tell them what they should be suffering over. I am telling you, I have found, it may sound, again, the reason I was putting in the cautionary note, if it sounds like a great philosophical survey and that you don't have any interest in it, that is, that you've never thought that about you, that you had never thought that you knew how to suffer, you knew what to be dissatisfied about, whereas everyone else in the world has to go out and find somebody to tell them. They seek some source, some description of what it is they should be dissatisfied about. Even though you may have never thought that, I can see that all of you could get something from it if you just took that stance. Uh, even though I brought up a little of it Friday, I'll be sure that you get this. This is not a theoretical or a philosophical survey of humanity. If you consider people are constantly, it is part of the collective game of consciousness, it is part of the collective world of words, is that men are continuing to turn to each other on a basis of friendship or family and are on a basis of seeking professional help. That people go to priests, rabbis, psychologists, counselors, and tell them what they've been thinking, things they've done, and then say, Am I wrong? Or is this unnatural? Or should I be bothered by this? This goes on constantly. It goes on in public. Uh, the radio currently, uh, God knows how many, but I'm just aware that there's these call-in psychiatrists or psychologists or counselors, people that have supposed degrees and people call in and we'll give their name and right there over the airways say, well, I've been sleeping with my first cousin. My husband knows nothing about it. And in fact, he one time went to marry. They go into all kinds of details and they'll say, well, and doctor, the reason I call her uh, since I've been doing this and I'm really attracted to her or him. But, uh, you know, am, am I wrong in doing this? Am I wrong in shoplifting? 
Somebody asked their friend, that's why I started. Or that maybe somebody called and asked a psychiatrist. I, I don't believe I'm a kleptomaniac. I finally looked up the word. But I have this propensity when I'm in a large store to pilfer a small item. I don't do it because I, I need to. I don't do it because I'm broke. And I consider that these large corporations are not going to miss it. Plus, I have some sort of, maybe it's an unconscious resentment to large corporations. So maybe I'm just trying to strike back at them. I don't need the item. I never steal anything of any great value. Uh, I don't know. It's, and then they're not going to miss it. Uh, but I wonder sometimes, uh, should I not be doing this? All, right, all the way from that sort of thing, which as I was putting to you in somewhat theatrical terms Friday, I assume you get the point. From one view, there is no doubt for people to say that is inane. Because I still say to you that everyone on this planet knows what to do. Uh, what ordinary people would say right from wrong. I'm just using their terms. Everyone knows what they should do. And I'll repeat it again from Friday if you didn't get it. I know an individual could look you dead in the eye or look me in the eye and say, well, I don't. That's why I, I like my priest. I like, I like to talk to my rabbi because there's certain intricacies that the Ten Commandments or the general teaching of the church or maybe my mother never covered this and the fine upbringing she tried to lay on me. But sometimes I need to have specific counseling and advice from someone whose life has been specialized in uh, living an upright moral life and been studying scriptures. And so I like to go and talk to someone. I say to you that six billion people on this planet, because life knows what to do, that's all we're talking about. And so people know what to do. And in the same sense, if you don't get it, and people who say that they need the Ten Commandments, that they need, uh, if they're Muslim, that they need Islam to give them a guide to life because things are so uncertain that circumstances can vary. And at times, the upright moral path seems to be ambiguous or the path you should take. And so therefore, you need counseling. And therefore, I'm glad, says somebody, that I have my Buddhist faith. I'm glad that I have my uh, Islamic faith. But you understand the Islamic faith, Buddhism, Christianity, the Ten Commandments, came from a human. So humans know what to do. Uh, this is so simple. It is so transparent. I, I just res I hesitate. I've got no real taste to stay on this very long. If you simply look out, if you think, or if any human, but you've thought this, and you think, well, by God, let's, let's figure out the Ten Commandments again. That by God, you don't even have to be a Christian. You don't have to be a Christian or a Jew. It's just good. You could have a secular attitude toward life, but this would be rules to live by. This is the way a man should conduct his life to be civil, to be decent, to be upright and honorable, is to live by the Ten Commandments, no matter whether you're a Christian or a Jew or religious at all. All right, let's accept that. But I'm telling you, the person who said it knows what to do without those because human intelligence, which is life's intelligence through humans, made a human for to believe history, Moses wrote it, came out of his head, life pushed it right through him. It came out, and he brought it down and said, God said it, supposedly. And people went, wow. That's just an easier sell than him saying that, you know, he could say, I went up on a mountaintop and I fasted and I meditated for a long time. And it hit me. I've been pondering a long time <clears throat> what would be the kinds of rules a person should live by to live the most honorable kind of life and what sorts of life should we all lead individually that would make communal life more efficient, more feasible, more pleasing. And I decide <coughs> that, these kind, that these 10 rules would do it. I mean, there's people's adopted philosophies and ideas from other humans. The attributes to God, the further, the further you get away from it, humans, as you should know by now, you check with yourself, 
the more humans seem to go for it. Which again, if you're interested, you might point out you probably heard it on your own, but that's one reason, or one of the reasons uh, I've heard people say to me and write to me that that's one of the things that was off-putting about me is uh, they were just sure that I was representing somebody else and the more I insisted and they finally accepted that it was just me, that they sort of lost interest. And I can understand that. It was like, well, you know, I've seen you. Now, I saw you one time in person. I met you somewhere and I talked to you after some lecture. And uh, you didn't do anything horrible, but, you know, I finally decided that you were telling the truth. It was just all coming from you. And they didn't know how to put it. But I can put it for them. It was like, well, it's too up close. Or you're just some old human. You're just some person. You know, if you'd told me that you actually had secret papers from Gurdjieff or from some Sufi group or you had studied with somebody and they just sworn you to secrecy. You know, any, what they're saying is just give me any kind of bullshit story <laughs> that you had studied with some mystic. Even maybe he's been discredited now. Maybe they caught him, you know, <laughs> engaged in unspeakable acts with Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts. <laughs> but they don't want to look at, and I'm not, all this is talking about is the human brain. Because they do not want to face that, well, it starts here. Because if it does that, and they stuck around me, they know what's coming next. Or I, I believe they sense it. Is I, if I finally said to them, if I talked for a while to them, and they went, wow, 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 everything you said, that's just what I've been looking for. How great it is to meet you. And if I said, all right, so you can accept the fact that nobody taught me this. I didn't study it from some secret group. There is no secret. Well, there are secret groups, but they're idiots. The reason they're secret is they don't know anything. You know, and if you lay low and act like you're secret, you know how that goes. People go, hmm, those people know something. They just won't tell us. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, at any rate, so I could talk to them, and if they finally decide, well, boy, you really helped me, and you've told me what I've been looking for, and I said, all right, so now you can accept after X amount of days or hours or months that this all just came through me, that there's nowhere else to look. And they can say, yeah, I accept it. And I go, okay. Now, that's progress, because at one time you believed it had to be some great secret group and it had to be a lineage going back thousands of years, and they went, yeah, you're right. I said, but now you'll face the fact you're staying right here looking at another human, an ordinary human. Because the anything I am is ordinary. And that I, some way, apparently figured this out. It all came from me. He went, yeah, I got it. And I went, okay, let's make real progress. Screw that, it all comes from you. If you want to really get it, realize what you got from me, you got from you anyway. It just apparently was just a reflection. It sounded like it came from me. Now get the hell away from here and go do it yourself. Because I wouldn't necessarily tell him to get the hell, but I'd say, quit just staring at me because it's all coming from life. It's not coming from me. You finally bought into the story you got over. Again, I assume that all of you realize this. When it's, you claim to be, it's not just the mysticism, it's the Catholic Church. It's all religions. That this is a blank. Thousands of years now, I mean, that's kind of the minimum. Upstart religions, Islam. Now, but now what we're talking about is 1,500 years old. But Judaism and Zoroastrianism and the you know, Christianity, 2,000 years old. Hinduism. And so it's like you just can't imagine. It's just one teacher, you're just going back and back and back. Would be, what would it be? A hundred generations. You know, 25, hundred generations, you think. And it just seems to be, it's like an antique. It's like, well... You know, there's a belief, if you don't know it, that Jesus had children and that some of his great, 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 in other words, in his line are alive right now teaching. That keeps floating around. That keeps popping up if you're not aware of it. And somebody's tracked down last I heard is supposed to be a banker in Belgium. <laughs> well, I've seen his name. That he is. That Jesus had children. Well, there's a long, serious story about it. Anyway... But there is an attraction to that, without any doubt, that, wait a minute, Christianity and the whole mysticism of it, and if you look at it that way, the whole grip of it and the influence out of the world, what if there is actual part of Jesus' bloodline alive today, a male child, because there is also this belief of Baraka, that there is you know, in the blood, there is in the soul, in the essence, of course, back then they didn't have the terms. You know, the DNA. 
Of course, I got the terms now, but I don't hear mystics talking about DNA. It's still the Baraka. The DNA! No, it's the blood, the mystical blood of Jesus. The genes. At any rate, there is a, and it's an attraction that I am not just sloughing off with a laugh. It is very deep. That all of you surely know it. I said that's before I got off on the sidetrack. But there, there's an indescribable weight that the mind feels that is inherent when something has age to it. An idea. I mean, some people are attracted enough to furniture that they find out it's 300 years old. <laughs> but when it gets to ideas, the older it is, it's in, well, and you can explain it. That is, well, if an idea is that old and people still remember it, trust it, study it, then by God, there must be something to it. How did the Ten Commandments last? My God, for 4,000 plus years. To get somebody to realize it can start right here. That is a big move in the person's understanding. That's why I was going to say was the real move is instead of looking even right here, that is to somebody else, is look at yourself. Because it's always life. It's in the collective genetics of men. It's in life. It's just everywhere. You can't get away from it if you try. You can refuse to see it. You can refuse to hear it. Which is crude. It's most people are not wired up. Most people have no interest. Life doesn't have that much interest. This kind of life's reflection on itself only shows up in a few of us. But back to where I was. When I said that I realized, just take this for what it is, even if you never thought it about you, that I don't need anyone to tell me what should be bothering me. I'm way past, I never really need anybody to tell me how to live. And I repeat, I don't, as far as I'm concerned, no one needs anyone to tell them how to live because life knows how to live. That is, everyone knows, quote, right from wrong. Everybody knows what to do. Why life has arranged this way, I leave to you. But I say that everyone knows that in one way it is foolish. It is self-deception. And all these words are not correct. But I'm just trying to get you to look at it in a certain way. I say that no one needs to go talk to a priest, a rabbi, their mother, a friend, and say, should I have done that? Should I do this? Everyone knows. They either, I left it to you, it's neither one, but if you use it as two possibilities to look through, either people are unable individually to see what's going on, to accept it, or else life just doesn't want them to. There is a, like a collective mass hysteria or mass hallucination, mass self-deception that we don't know what to do individually. I don't know what to do and thank God for my religion or even just thank God for my father, my mother. Thank God for my good friend that I have because when I get in a quandary in life, when I become uncertain as to, you know, should I leave this woman that I've been sleeping with? Should I break out of this business deal? The people are depending on me. All those kinds of questions. At least thank God I have a friend. It's not a religion. I can go to this person and talk to them, and their counsel is always good. It's always sound advice. But if you notice, most people lack a religion because it is dogmatic. It is not a matter of discussion normally. You go in and talk to a priest. Uh, Father, I killed uh, my wife last night. And uh, you know, this morning I got up and... You know, the coffee wasn't on. I really, I remembered what I'd done, and I thought, shit, you know, I may have made a mistake. I, maybe I shouldn't have done that. I mean, yeah, she made me mad, but maybe I shouldn't have killed her. So uh, I rushed right over here. You know, what do you think? And he can immediately point to the whatever it is, the fourth commandment or whatever. And said, you know, you idiot, you sinful, naughty person. It says right here, God said, I shall not kill. It is not 
ambiguous. Thou shalt not kill. That is what people seem to want. That is what people seem to want from their parents. That is what people seem to want. That's one of the complaints that's always uh, been prevalent with psychoanalysis, as it was classically practiced, is the psychiatrist wouldn't give you a straight answer. I've been dreaming about having sex with my sister. Is that bad? The psychiatrist says, do you think it is? <laughs> Which is another story. But people love, uh, apparently, to have an absolute answer. If you're going to look at it in a certain way, and I'll try to get off of it. See, that's what people can't give to themselves. If you want to look at it, there are other ways to look at it, but uh, i got to go ahead and tell you the, the big one that ever hit me that helped me get more out of it, I'll go ahead and give it away, is why do people seek, or what's the basis of people seeking? If I'm correct, everybody knows what to do. Then why do people seek words of direction external to themselves, be it from a religion or just be it from another human being? And I say this, other human beings... Check with yourself. You can give absolute, dogmatic, unconditional answers to other people. Can you not? Cannot any human on this planet, somebody come to you, your brother, sister, mother, daughter, son, friend, stranger, come up to you and go, I was thinking about holding up a bank. I was thinking about leaving my wife. I found this younger woman, and now my wife's you know, middle-aged, and I'm just sick of it. What do you think, shall I leave her? You go, my God, man, no. How are you moral? Somebody's been with you all your life. Or whatever it is, you can tell somebody else. Can you do it to you? We're talking about an ordinary person. And the answer is no. That is one of the forms or one of the bases for irony. It's one of the bases for cynicism in life. That is, you find out that a, a minister who preaches... Every Sunday, every Saturday, every Tuesday, whatever the religion is, and he's making these absolutely unconditional condemnations of people. Oh, you sinners, I know that the people here in this audience that are committing adultery. God hates nothing worse than an adulterer. It's going to destroy our society, destroying our families, our children turn to juvenile delinquents, and it's got to stop. God hates it. Trust me, God hates it. He laid it on my soul. Next week you find out he didn't show up, you find out that he got caught in a motel with one of the sisters in the church. And people go, Jesus. The guy could not. And of course, that just, you understand, that's what normally passes or is, turns into what we call cynicism. The people that hear about what, Ed not just like it. He tells us what to do and he can't do it. That's not a singular, that's not a unique situation. Everybody on this planet does it. You just don't have an audience. You don't have a flock to sit there and listen to you make absolute unconditional condemnations and directives of how people should live their life. You don't have it, but you know damn well that somebody, a friend, somebody you know can come and ask for your advice, and normally you can give them, without any hesitation, you can give them an absolute unconditional piece of advice. They'll say, what should I do? Here's the situation. What should I do? And you don't have any trouble. You or any other normal human, you don't have any advice saying, well, no, there's no question. You should do A or you should do B. And they go, are you sure? And you go, well, hell yeah, I'm sure. Trust me. You must know in your heart that that's what to do. Another person says, well, I don't know. It just seemed I could look at one way and then the other. But you really think I should do A? Yes, no doubt. And they, they leave. Thank you. You know, what a great pleasure it is to have you as a friend. And then you don't notice it. But then you turn right around, it goes on constantly, and you're faced with what are uncertainties. Let's just say that you gave your good friend advice about what he should do that he was considering getting involved with an extramarital affair. And you go, oh no, don't ever do that. That is the worst thing. It will destroy your marriage. If that's going to happen, go ahead and divorce your wife, but don't try and run an extramarital affair while you're still married and trying to keep a home together. Don't ever do that. And your friend goes, well, I, you know, I sort of thought it was dangerous. And you go, no, it's not just dangerous. It is deadly. I mean, if you care anything about your children and your, your wife, don't do it. I understand how it is to be sexually attracted to somebody outside the marriage, but 
No, you're my friend. I'm telling you, it takes some sacrifice and willpower, but do not do that. I know. I know. Trust me. You go, well, by God, I'm glad I talked to you because I know you're right. So he leaves. And, you know, down what? You turn right around and you see somebody walk down the street. You or anybody else, a married person, and you look at them, you think, God, I'd like to screw her. You know, where's my wife? No, it's your face with the same thing. You think, and you don't even remember that just a few seconds before that, you gave your friend an absolute piece of advice. Now, this is not cynicism, as you know, and it's not sarcasm. I'm not picking on human frailty. I'm telling you, this is why humans look outside themselves for direction verbally. Because each individual can make unconditional or give unconditional verbal directions to others, but not to themselves. Then they think, what should I do? You understand? That's why I said it's like a mass hysteria or it's like a mass confusion. Is everybody turns to everybody else when you don't know what to do and go, what should I do? And somebody else tells you what to do. Then you wait a second and that same person turns to you and gives a different situation. They say, what should I do? And you go, oh, do that. And it really has nothing to do with intelligence, morality. It has to do with what? Let's all say it together. The way the brain works. And that's what people don't understand. Well, that's one thing being enlightened is. I would say that that's one thing that uh, I still see much has always been written about. The whole idea in Zen, for instance, is where the idea of spontaneity, that if a man was truly awakened from the Zen view, he would always be spontaneous. And they say, not only, I give them credit, they didn't put in these words, but they'd be spontaneous in his speech and in his action. But to be spontaneous, you have to know, you have to be awake to start with. Forget the movements for the time being, that's simple. But you've got to be spontaneous in your head. That is, you're faced with a situation, and you spontaneously know what to do. You don't have to stop and think, let's see. What did the rabbi say about that two or three years ago? Somebody else asked him about that. What did that say? That's not spontaneous. It's ordinary. But I say, that's what I meant was, if you got past words, were it not for the ordinary state of mind in which men live, I say all six billion people on this planet spontaneously know what to do because life spontaneously knows what to do. Where does life have to go? Who's the universe going to check with? Where does it go for advice? Of course, I'll tell you the truth, I don't really know. But we assume from physical observation, if I'm to take cosmologist's word for it, you can only see to the edge of the universe. If that, you can only see as far, I assume you get the point. If life does not know what it's doing, which it may not, but if life doesn't know what it's doing, you know, we're all in hell of a shape, which we may be. But anyway, you get the point, don't you? And even if you don't, I'm sure you get that point. And, oh, I see, we... Try one more time to finish it. The things that I say, uh, that I do them in the first person. Sometimes I'll hide them in a story to start with, but then I always end up and fess up to you. Uh, it's just me saying it. That I have considered that the whole world is awake, and I'm the only person on this planet asleep. And I, I feel sure, knowing how the mind works, that all of you, to varying degrees, believe that I am being metaphorical. Believe I'm in as a joke. Believe that I'm in it as symbolism for something else. No. I could, and I could talk about it metaphorically. But I have literally, and I still will periodically bring it up. Even though I know the answer, even though I know the secret to all of this, to what's going on. But I will still bring it up because I can find it useful. And what I'm trying to tell you, even if you... You make a mistake, from my view. You pass up a possibility. If you take such things as that to be just something that I just threw off to the side, or if you take it as being too philosophical, that it has to do too much with the theoretical idea of what the great secret work is rather than something individually about you, potentially, you're missing it. Because I can still, I could make a whole mystical system Truly, I could make one and talk about it the rest of my life just on that basis. Start off and ask everybody, have you read enough? Do you know the idea that man believes he is fully conscious? All ordinary people do. 
but that from a view, from an experienced view, it is not so. There is another state available of consciousness that is so different that it makes your ordinary state, when you look back on it, seem like you were just half asleep. They call it being asleep. And through certain efforts, you can change it, and it has the same relationship as being awake or when you wake up in the morning as it was when you're asleep dreaming. And so I, I got this crowd of people, and I'll go, yeah, we've read all about that. And I'll go, okay. So I assume that you're all here that you'd like to awaken. They all go, yes, we would. So I assume that to varying degrees, you all still assume that you're still mainly captives of the state of sleep. And they go, yes, we are. I go, okay. Here's my system. Is that each of you individually, you must take this position. You must start with, it's just theoretical, but you must accept this is my working model. This is the premise from which I will try and direct you to see what I've discovered. And the premise is this. Just think about this seriously at all times. There's no doubt about it, since you've heard about it and read about it, there's no doubt that you are asleep. Yes, I am. And you're aware that very few people even, yeah. All right, consider this, the possibility that everybody else on this planet, everybody, the people in this room, the people out on the street that never heard of this, that just everybody on this planet, just their natural state, that they are, in the mystical sense, awake right now, have been and are right now that they're awake and that you are the only person on this planet in that state of sleep. If you cannot hold that in mind, if you cannot, if you cannot refrain from dismissing that, then you're wasting your time here because it is on that basis that I construct everything else that I might say to you. I could do that. That's how important, that's how bountiful such things as that are that may appear to you at first glance to be just some great philosophical either well, just some philosophical, theoretical view of things, or you might consider it was just a piece of humor. No. I have found that to be extremely useful, and I was bringing it up to date. I have found it also to be extremely useful to consider. Although it sounds like it's about me personally, do it to yourself. That I am different from everybody on this planet, including every mystic I've ever read about and have ever met, in that, I know without anybody telling me, I don't, you know, I don't even, I'm not interested. I don't need anyone to even hint to me. I don't need any outside information as to what it is that the problem is, the so-called problem with sleep, that condition. I don't need any information. I don't need any book. I don't need any, even things I read in the past that I thought were helpful. I've forgotten them all. They mean nothing because I see it head on and I, I've never read anybody who, I'm not saying that they didn't, but I've never read a description that even is in the same neighborhood with my direct view of it. In other words, to me, my view, just for my use, is so direct, is so good, to anything else I ever read. And stuff that I love, stuff that I would still, in a sense, I feel a certain fondness for if I happen to look at a book and remember, oh, but there's no view, there's no theory, there's no system, there's no words that any other human on this planet's ever said that I'm aware of that's even close to what I know is going on. That is, I know how to suffer. I know what the problem is. I know the situation, and I don't need anybody. And see, that doesn't even cover it. It's not that I don't need anybody. As far as I know, there is nobody who sees it as good as I do, at least in me. And so therefore, it means nothing. Therefore, I can say, without any contradiction to myself, that I am different from everybody on this planet, including all other mystics, because I know what the problem is. I know what the situation is. I know what my cause of dissatisfaction is, whereas everyone else must be told. They must be informed. They must read it somewhere. And they must continually check with somebody. Am I still suffering in the right way? If I still got my own the right problem? Yes, yes, yes. Oh, good, good. Just wanted to check. I understand that. I'm not making fun of it. But I'm telling you, I have gotten... I have gotten much out of that. More than you would think. More than has to do with what I'm specific... that the words cover. By me just considering that... And this is the way I look at it. 
that six billion people, including all the world's mystics on this planet, no one on their own, no one by themselves knows how to suffer, knows what a problem is. They all must continually check, recheck with each other, confirm it, look it back up, try for an update. And all that infers is they will never get it. Because if you're not spontaneous, if you don't know what it is now, that's why you keep asking. Am I on the right track? Yes, you are. If you've got to ask if you're on the right track, you're not on the track yet. You may be along the right of way, <laughs> but you're not on the track. There's no danger of you getting run down. Put it to you another way, what it amounts to, if you fool around with it and get what I'm saying about it, that's way beyond the words. And as, as I said, there's just all sorts of things that's led me to. If you take outside influences to be of any useful effect, you still don't get it. And this is hard to... There's no way to describe this. I always bite my tongue and usually refrain from saying anything when I get in this corner or this area. You can't stop being influenced by life. That's why, without them understanding, I repeat that mystics of all stripes have so historically been so historically been common for them to retreat from life, to go off by themselves, no matter how they explain it in words. What they're trying to do, I know the reality of it, is to cut down, to minimize, and what they really want is to stop all outside influences. And in words, you can make you can build a verbal defense of that. You can build a verbal uh, basis for positive action on that. That is by saying, well, if you could stop all outside influences, it would be much easier to bring your internal life under control. It'd be much easier to awaken if you could just stop all this bullshit out there. Yeah, 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 yeah. You can't. You're the same thing as the bullshit. You can't cut off the environment. You're the same thing as the environment. But I understand why people say that, why people try to do it. So in spite of that, I'm about to say, if you don't watch it, you're going to think that I just turned around and said the exact same thing that I said can't be done. You still don't get it if you passively let anything affect you. I repeat, you can't stop it. But if you're listening to the radio, if you're listening to somebody talk to you or if you're just overhearing, if you listen, and let me leave out the world of movement, because you'll never get past that. You'll never get over that, nor should you. I mean, if you, if you tried to cut out the world of movement from influencing you, you would die. You would literally die. So we're talking about the world of words. You'll never stop the world of words from influencing let me put it to you this way, your normal mind. But you do not have to passively accept it. You don't have to blindly let it happen and believe it to be other than it is. That is to believe, well, it's not affecting me. You're an idiot. Now, when I say affecting you, remember, I'm talking about affecting your wordy mind. Words have very little effect on people's movement. But the world of movement is not what the world of awakening is about. It's about the world of words. But if you simply let what you hear, or what you read, same thing, that you let other people's words, either on a printed page or in the air, go into your head, into your brain, and that part of the brain that we call consciousness consists of words. And these other words always affect your words which is why people ask for advice. You're getting advice whether you want it or not. But anyway, the words of others, the outside influences always affect you, that part of your brain, and they always will. But the difference between being awake and being asleep, don't you know? Well, from one view, people awake understand what I just said. Except people sleep it here and say, well, I understand that. Much of what people do say or what people say in words I read can affect me. Who put in the word can? 
So I'm responding now to an ordinary person. They go, well, no, under certain conditions. I didn't say anything about certain conditions. Well, I don't agree with everything I read. Some things I read or hear I disagree with. So, you don't get it? Yeah, but it doesn't affect me. Does anybody get it? But see, if you sit there and say, well, you listen to my words and go, yeah, now I got it. See, you let it affect you. See, trying to awaken is the only thing. You say, are you getting more awake? Somebody say, yeah, and you realize they're asleep. It's the only thing that you can positively respond to or can speak in the affirmative of the progress you're making, and all that is a sure sign that you're stuck. You're rolling in a gutter somewhere, out in pig slop, hollering, yes, I'm awake, making great progress, and you're on your back and swill. <laughs> the swill of self-deception. I don't know what that meant. <laughs> but God, I like the words. <laughs> That's all that matters. Don't let that affect you now. Yeah, I do. If that affects you properly, you'd wake up. Oh. All right, my final word. I told you this can't be described, but now I start, I bet you this will be my new undertaking is to finally try to describe it. You're making, you're being misadvised. You're misdirecting yourself. If you let, if you still believe, let's, let me put it this way for tonight to stop it. If you believe that it can be useful, that it's proper under any conditions, for words extrinsic to you, the words outside of you, either on a written page or that someone says, if you feel it's proper, perhaps even useful, for those words to affect your words, for someone else's thinking, if you will, to affect your thinking, if you still believe that, God, you don't get it. It's not so. Your attitude should be, that nothing will affect my thinking but what I know. Nothing will affect my thinking but my thinking. And that is not the final word, by the way. But that should be a person's attitude. That nothing, well, nothing means anything to me unless I thought it. Unless I apparently, which again, it's an illusion, but unless I apparently was the source of what I thought. There was not something I just read or heard of course, you get good, you can read or hear something, and you think something else. At that, 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 that any rate, if it's not me, screw it. To be crude. It's the best you can, it's the closest you can come to being a kind of mental hermit. You are the inside central core, the unknown secret core of the Tower of Babel right there in the center, instead of all the other languages which simply represent the confusion of a man's many eyes from certain kind of Sufi analyzation, is right in the middle of that tower was this teeny little hollow space. And in there it was dead silent. So you didn't know that. You know why? Well, you never read that because I just made it up. But it's the kind of thing, if I'd read it years ago, I'd went, wow, whoever said that, I'm going to go find them and study with them. Now I don't have to worry. I don't have to leave the house. I thought of it. And it's better than anything I ever heard. It's more useful to me. But it doesn't sound very mystical, does it, when you look at it like, well, I thought of that. Again, that's the difference between me and everybody else as far as I'm concerned. Everybody else goes, well, I thought of that, but you know, they don't know how to, to analyze it themselves, but it's like, well, I thought about it, so it can't be of any great significance. Of course, it helps. You've got this great guru or somebody, and you can go to them. You know, light incense, or do whatever you're doing, bow and get an appointment, go and say, you know, honored master, last night I was reading some of your works, and I suddenly had this thought about perhaps in the center of the Tower of Babel, if it was a metaphor, would be this little thin core 
right in the heart of it, that was silent. Am I on to something, Master? So that he could validate it. And so, you idiot, or he might go, I like that. Or, yes, that's very good, my boy. So I put it to you another way. If you need, it's, both, it's the front and the back end of what I'm talking about, about letting things affect you, that you should not passively, you shouldn't accept the fact that anything wordy affects you, which it does, but you shouldn't accept it. Just That's what I mean by screw it. You just don't accept it. It's happening. If I'm in a dazed state, if I'm just partially asleep or partially awake, I can have on the radio or overhear a conversation. If I can hear one announce the president said so-and-so, and that old part of my brain, even though I know better, just so that you know, it never changes. That old part of my brain, here it is, waves coming out of this plastic box called a radio of somebody, not even the person who said it. Somebody's quoting an AP report that said that someone heard the president say, well, blah, 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 blah. And that part of your brain goes, well, you goddamn idiot, that you're talking to a plastic box. It's worse than that. You're talking to the air. You should not accept that. It's going on. But you understand what I mean by not accept it? It's like, screw that. I do not accept that. And it's not really screw it. The real place is to be, as I said, is indifferent. It's just it can't be helped. That's the way it is. The other end of that, is if I didn't think of it, if it didn't come from me, it has no value. Because if it came from me, it does not need outside validation. It does not need me to ask anyone. That concludes this talk. Be sure to visit us at jancox.com where you can search through 3,000 talks for topics of interest or just leave us a message.